Those of you that have been watching me for a while most likely know that I love Sonic Mega Collection. I still consider it the gold standard for compilations. For $20, you'd have access to most of the games that made Sonic a household name, as well as a few bonus games, special videos, high-resolution scans of cheesy comic covers and instruction manuals, and an ethereal retro aesthetic that evokes a powerful feeling of nostalgia. There's a simple pleasure in flipping through relics of Sonic's past, and that has only become more apparent to me with time. Sonic Mega Collection is where I first immersed myself in Sonic, and going back to it today always provides me with a comforting trip back into my childhood. If it wasn't already obvious, I didn't grow up with a Sega Genesis. By the time I was able to retain memories, Sega had abandoned console development and began publishing games for other platforms. In that regard, the fact that my love of Sonic truly began with the collection celebrating his history is quite meta. I am celebrating a celebration of Sonic. But I think that is a huge testament to the games included in the collection. I believe the original Sonic the Hedgehog games are still some of the greatest platformers of all time, and they are the reason I was once proud to call myself a Sonic fan. But that's just it. These days, being a Sonic fan doesn't bring me the same feeling. In tone, gameplay, structure, writing, appearance, and especially overall quality, Sonic the Hedgehog has become a wildly inconsistent franchise. Any glimmer of hope that shines through soon fades away. We're at the point where the fans can't even agree on what is best for Sonic, due to the drastic shifts made in response to each game, creating factions within the fanbase. And with the consistent damage being done to the franchise's reputation, the image of Sonic the Hedgehog has been an absolute mess for a long time. Because of all this, it's almost hard to believe that at one point Sonic was capable of dethroning Mario. There was a time in which Sonic was revered around the world for everything that now divides its fans and critics. Its gameplay was ingenious and the games remain incredibly rewarding and unique experiences that you can't have anywhere else. It was able to convey a lot within the limitations of its hardware, and this is true for its graphics, audio, personality, atmosphere, and even its story. There is a simplistic joy in revisiting classic Sonic. And it's something that I cherish amidst the chaos that has come about as a result of Sonic Team trying to maintain the franchise's colossal legacy. The name Sonic Team used to refer to a talented team of Sega developers that formed an alliance and did the impossible. They worked together to flesh out the core of Sonic the Hedgehog. Saw continued to claim after expanding their team and creating its sequels, reunited in Japan to create an all-new IP and make the Sonic Team name official, and successfully transitioned the Sonic series into 3D before going their separate ways. After that, Sonic Team was left without its founders to guide them, resulting in the hit-and-miss output that we've seen since. Over that time period, there have been games that I absolutely love and elements of games that I absolutely love, which are the reasons I don't doubt that there's still passion left at that studio. But even Sega themselves have admitted to betraying fans. Thankfully, things are looking up with Sonic Frontiers. It is shaping up to be a complete reinvention of what a Sonic game should be in the modern day, and that may be for the best. But if we've learned anything, it's that we can't predict the future. And so, here I am, playing these old Sonic games once again. For this video, I wanted to walk you through my attachment to the classic era of Sonic. Everything that made me fall in love with Sonic in the first place, how its creators continued to build on such an incredible foundation, and what its eventual conclusion with Sonic Adventure meant for the franchise's future. Ultimately, I want to show you why I come back to Sonic Mega Collection when the going gets tough. I'm Liam Triforce, and this is why I love Classic Sonic.
Super Mario World was and still is the quintessential 2D platformer. It took the tried-and-true gameplay loop of Mario, built upon the exploration and secret hunting established in Super Mario Bros. 3, and created one hell of an engaging, rewarding, and memorable platformer. You could progress from level to level, or find all of those secret exits by using all of your abilities effectively. However you chose to play Super Mario World would reward you with levels that perfectly challenge your skill level. There's a lot more to be said about this game, so, in short, it's awesome. And the contemporary response back then from critics and audiences seemed to echo this sentiment. But even with some of Nintendo's finest work headlining the Super Nintendo in 1991, the Sega Genesis outsold it 2-1 that year, all thanks to a speedy blue hedgehog. Sonic was born out of a corporate desire for Sega to rival Nintendo in market share, with them even holding an internal contest to open to anyone at the company to see if someone would cough up a competent mascot. Sorry Alex Kid, you weren't gonna cut it. But despite these corporate desires, there were three bright young developers within Sega that made sure brilliant game design took agency over this mascot being a shallow marketing ploy. First there was Yuji Naka, a talented programmer looking for his next project. He had a desire to create a fast-paced action platformer for two reasons. The first being his recently completed work porting Ghouls and Ghosts to the Sega Genesis, in which the protagonist would traverse across seamless landscapes with hills and slopes. The second reason was Super Mario Bros. Obviously it was the first of its kind, but Naka was enamored with its nuances. World 1-1 is perhaps the most famous case of teaching a player through gameplay. The Goomba walking toward you, the blocks above your head, the Super Mushroom, the importance of holding the B button. Everything is conveyed in an effort to eventually make players feel like they own the game. The part that Naka fixated on was the absence of a save feature, which meant players would constantly have to replay the first level and as a result, they'd keep getting better at it. They'd keep beating it faster and faster using well-timed jumps and that famous shortcut. This is actually a huge part of what makes Super Mario Bros. such a well-crafted game. Take World 4-1 for example. This Lakitu follows you throughout the entire level, but if you maintain your speed throughout the level's duration, the spinies it throws will never touch you. This does not come easy though. With deadly pits and tall piranha plant pipes to clear, maintaining this momentum means clearing some tight jumps at full speed. Early in the level, a group of coins are arranged in the exact arc of a full speed jump, which teaches you that you can just barely clear each piranha plant without getting hit. Naka wanted to build upon the sense of speed you could earn in Super Mario Bros. and the levels in Ghouls and Ghosts. His initial ideas led to players controlling a rabbit that threw objects with its ears, but the stop-and-go nature of this mechanic led to it being scrapped. In order to realize his vision for this project, he'd need some help. Coincidentally, Naoto Oshima was also looking to create Sega's next big game. He wanted to create a game starring a fast character that could run through loops, and make sure that the character would leave an impact. Oshima and Naka had previously worked together on Phantasy Star, and Oshima's concept of running through loops fit perfectly with the flowing landscapes and sense of speed that inspired Naka in the first place. Shortly after, Hirokazu Yasuhara was invited to help the team with overall game and level design. With Naka and Yasuhara coming up with ideas, Oshima illustrating how they would look, and Naka implementing them, these three made up the original Sonic team. From here, the game began to truly take shape. Naka wanted the game to only use a single button alongside the D-pad, so Yasuhara suggested simply being able to jump on enemies. Naka recalled a mechanic he came up with in high school, wherein a character would somersault into enemies to defeat them. Yasuhara wanted the game's progression to feel like an amusement park ride, with each zone representing a new concept in layout and in its mechanics. Oshima took these ideas into consideration when designing a new character for the game, eventually settling on a spiky blue hedgehog with attitude. 
He wanted this character to fight for what he believed in and refuse to take orders, which was evocative of 90s sensibilities and would eventually play a crucial role in marketing. The three of them collaborated on what worked best until finally, Sonic the Hedgehog was born. They had finally created a platformer that was entirely built around speed. Land formations like loops and ramps demonstrated Naka's programming skills. The bounce and somersault attacks were beautifully implemented and complemented the game's flow of action. After a jump and depending on how long Sonic is falling for before landing on an enemy, players could hold the button while landing on the enemy to maintain their velocity, enabling some incredible traversal tech throughout stages. The somersault is activated by holding down during a run, and if you roll down any slope or curved surface, you'll gain speed. Knowing how to use the roll effectively can allow you to blitz through portions of a stage and plow through any enemies that stand in your way. While sometimes levels could enable players to gain speed inherently with accessible level design, Naka and Yasuhara also made sure that problem solving and repeat playthroughs would be required to see levels in a new light, echoing back to the education and replayability on display in Mario's design. Building enough speed with the use of terrain and knowledge of your abilities could lead to the player launching Sonic across the level, a reward for the speed they've accrued. At last, they had their game. All that was left was to make sure it would be a hit. With a strong and memorable marketing campaign, hugely successful tests with focus groups and a pack-in deal with the Sega Genesis, this new take on the classic platforming genre, paired with a cool, identifiable new character, was enough to overtake Nintendo and market share by the end of the holiday season in 1991. The Sonic team was successful, and the rest is history. There are other elements of this game's development that I find fascinating or otherwise really charming. Oshima went through numerous design concepts for the star of their game. Numerous. There would be lengthy debates about what would work best for a character that rolls into things. Around this time, Oshima had booked a trip to New York City, so he decided to take the opportunity to ask locals which designs they liked best. There he was, sitting in Central Park with drawings of three cartoon characters next to him. These characters were a dog, a round, egg-shaped looking guy, and an early design of our spiky blue hero. He asked people walking by which characters they liked most, and everyone seemed to agree that the hedgehog was their favorite, followed by the egg-shaped guy. Thus, Sonic and Dr. Eggman got their start. Cute story, I think. Another forgotten detail I always enjoyed was the Roger Rabbit-esque relationship Sonic almost had with a human character named Madonna. Both designs are just adorable next to each other because they don't have that Warner Brothers comical grotesqueness. Oshima's earliest Sonic designs were super cute, perhaps even too cute to be depicted as cool. Ultimately, I think cutting Madonna out was for the best because her existence would have betrayed Sonic's nature as a character. He goes his own way and fights for what he thinks is right. Somehow I don't think he'd be interested in romance. Anyway, I could go on about the details that shaped Sonic, but in the long run, it was the game that made him a star. It's been over 30 years since Sonic made his debut, but it's amazing how well games from the 16-bit era have held up. Along with Super Mario World, The Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past and Super Metroid have both stood the test of time and remain some of the best games of their kind. As for Sonic the Hedgehog on Sega Genesis? Well, let's start with the stuff that's still awesome. I think we all inherently understand why Sonic is fun to control, and I outlined some of that while discussing the game's development. It's all about the dopamine that the engine is capable of producing. Rolling down inclines to gain speed, bouncing off of badniks and maintaining your momentum, ramping off of stuff, it's incredible. The engine Yuji Naka developed is the stuff dreams are made of. But simply letting players run wild with it would not make for an engaging overall experience. 
Level design is just as important to Sonic as speed. One cannot thrive without the other. And I can't think of a better level to demonstrate this than Green Hill Zone. Green Hill was redesigned from scratch several times over the course of Sonic's development. Naka wanted to make sure the levels in Sonic felt wide and easy to navigate so that players wouldn't get lost. If the layout of a level was confusing in Sonic, gaining speed would take a backseat to endless navigation, which would betray the heart of the game he was trying to make. On top of that, Green Hill Zone had to accomplish a similar feat to the original Super Mario Bros., wherein the level could be both an effective tutorial and a rewarding experience for those that had mastered the game. In the end, I think their work paid off. Green Hill Zone is a pretty fantastic introduction to the game. Immediately it establishes a captivating atmosphere with its vibrant rolling hills, gorgeous backgrounds, and Masato Nakamura's cinematic opening piece inviting you in. At the time, the game's visuals were something of a technical marvel. The Super Nintendo was capable of displaying 32,768 different possible colors, whereas the Genesis could only do 512. But Sonic the Hedgehog demonstrated that it wasn't about the amount of colors, it was about what you did with them. Sure, the aesthetic of Green Hill would become tiresome as many future Sonic games would call back to it, but man do I love the sprite work and color coordination of the Genesis Sonic games. Putting aesthetics aside, let's dive into what makes Green Hill so special in action. It takes some crucial cues from World 1-1 by conveying a lot to new and experienced players through game design. Let's start with rings. You have a ring counter, and rings are shiny, so you can put two and two together. You accidentally let yourself get hit by an enemy, and you drop all your rings. The more you have, the more you drop when you get hit, which gives you more of a chance to recoup your losses. As long as you have one ring, you don't die. You know the drill. This is a unique evolution of the mushroom from Mario, and it runs deeper. Like Mario, collecting 100 rings will net you an extra life, but holding onto at least 50 of them as you cross the goalpost will make a giant ring appear leading you to a special stage for a chance at a Chaos Emerald. The more you play, the more rings you're able to find. The more you memorize hazards in a level, the better you get at being able to avoid them. All of this meaning you hold onto more rings for longer. Not only is holding onto large amounts of rings tangibly rewarding, but it's also psychologically satisfying seeing that counter go up because you're able to avoid damage and collect rings in the first place. In Mario, the coin counter rolls over when you hit 100 and it doesn't reset at the beginning of every level, so it isn't nearly as gratifying to rack up the big numbers. In Sonic, the process of trying to maintain high ring counts is representative of how much you are improving. Improvement is the name of the game with Sonic, and in order to break that down, we need to look at Green Hill's layout. First, let's talk about how you are educated on core concepts. If we assume that most players are going to want to go fast, Act 1 enables that pretty well. You can run, jump, roll, and carry your momentum with minimal challenge. The branching paths are easy to understand, and the game will show the player what speed can do for them with that famous ramp up into a group of rings. Act 2 attempts to make the player more cautious when moving forward by using spikes in a perilous platforming section before Act 3 comes along and says, Okay, hotshot, you can't just hold forward without facing the consequences. This is done through spikes, a plethora of enemies, and springs that send you flying backward. This is essential in managing the game's difficulty progression and pacing, as it gives you a sampling of the balance you can expect them to strike in level design. The first fight with Eggman's Wrecking Ball goes against your natural jumping patterns and forces you to learn new patterns on the fly, which is something you'll need to get used to for each new Eggman battle. Going back to Act 2, this is where they start to intentionally convey hidden goodies. 
For starters, one of the slopes will shoot Sonic directly into an invincibility monitor, which makes dealing with the enemies in the platforming section a breeze. This also subconsciously informs the player of hidden objects in the trees. Toward the end of the act, you can catch a glimpse of a spring next to a ring monitor, and jumping on it leads you to yet another ring formation. This attentiveness also pays off with an invincibility monitor at the beginning of Act 3. So that's one thing, but there's also something else at play in Act 2. While zooming through this loop, you'll no doubt spot an extra life monitor on top. Well, how the heck do you get that? As it turns out, every single loop in Green Hill has a monitor on top. Sometimes you can break them by finding alternate paths, and other times you can use the environment to your advantage at high speeds. The shield on top of that first loop in Act 1 can be easily broken either by taking the top route with some patient jumping, or by simply riding the nearby floating platform up. This is a small example though. Let's say that you fall into the lower half of Act 1 by accident and decide to jump over the spikes. It's a more perilous route, but waiting for you at the end are 30 rings and an invincibility monitor. This communicates the risk versus reward factor when taking the more difficult routes, which persists through Act 2. If you decide to make a tight jump over the first set of spikes, bam, 20 rings and a shield, ring insurance. You roll through the wall, and you can find a pair of speed shoes. If you manage to move fast enough, you can finally make the jump and reach the extra life on top of the loop. The best part? That's not the only way to grab it. You can also use the spring at the end of the lower route as a reward for getting past all of the hazards. It all depends on how you decide to view the levels based on your abilities, how you decide to play the game. You could take the top route in Act 3 to nab the extra life atop the loop, or you could use the spring nearby to launch yourself up to it. You could take the top route in Act 3 to avoid the perilous hazards in the bottom route, or you could brave the worst of them and jump beyond the spike pit at the end, and into the waterfall, to net yourself 50 rings and an extra life. The balance between collecting rings and clearing levels at breakneck speeds is reflected in the final tally at the end of the level, with faster times and higher ring counts rewarding you accordingly. At this point in an average playthrough of Sonic the Hedgehog, I am able to rack up lives in Green Hill Zone and prepare myself for what's to come. I've memorized most of the act layouts, and that includes pathways, item boxes, and enemy placements, meaning I can collect a ton of rings, bounce off of enemies successively to carry my velocity and multiply my score, time my jumps accordingly to keep my speed going, all in order to maximize my ring and time bonuses. The balancing act and achieving those bonuses is precisely what makes Sonic so much fun to play. Not only does it balance raw speed with a healthy dose of exploration beautifully, but it also enables players to play with the physics engine in creative ways to find shortcuts, secrets, and more, using momentum to blitz past the more difficult platforming sections in Marble Zone, flying through loops and bouncing off of springs in Starlight Zone to find alternate pathways and secrets, jumping off of a slope at the beginning of Spring Yard Zone Act 1 to find an extra life and speed shoes lying in wait, enabling you to fly along the top route of the level and bypass some of the difficult portions with some careful platforming. By timing my rolls in Springyard Zone once again, I can get into a pattern with the rotating mines and zoom through each halfpipe without having to sluggishly jump between them and risk losing my rings. It's all a spectacle that I've been rewarded with through honing my skills. And the best part about all of this? The game is incredibly easy to pick up. You run, you jump, you roll. A simplistic control scheme that is given depth thanks to a balance between the speed you can gain and how the level plays with that speed. No matter how many years pass and no matter how old I get, I will always have respect for how they managed to make simply playing as Sonic the Hedgehog endless amounts of fun. To say Green Hill Zone is an effective first level would be putting it lightly. The sensibilities it establishes in the player attempt to inform their decisions throughout the game, and based on how I've learned how to play, I'd say it paid off. Green Hill Zone is the best level in Sonic the Hedgehog.
which is why the other levels don't really live up to it. There was a lot of back and forth between the core team on how the levels in Sonic should be laid out. They valued this experience, but the end result is a roller coaster in terms of pacing and quality. Remember, Yasuhara wanted to make this game feel like an amusement park ride as you go from start to finish, and in a cynical sense, the game definitely evokes that feeling. One moment you're zooming through Green Hill, the next you're slowly waiting for platforms to move in Marble Zone. Then you're launching yourself around Spring Yard Zone, rolling through a halfpipe and bouncing off of enemies at high speeds, until you hit Labyrinth Zone in which you have to slowly trudge through bodies of water. Starlight Zone liberates you from this watery prison, giving you some high speeds through loops and slopes, while also keeping you on your toes with some of the most dangerous hazards in the game. Scrap Brain Zone has some intriguing level concepts like the spinning wheels that can launch Sonic, but it also has a few obnoxious elements too. Overall, I don't think they could consistently find a balance between speed and platforming like they could with Green Hill Zone. Let me elaborate. The intent behind Marble Zone makes a lot of sense to me. It keeps the player in check if they previously blitzed through Green Hill Zone and skipped a lot of the depth it had to offer. Some of the platforming challenges in Marble Zone harken back to Acts 2 and 3 of Green Hill as well, which reflect that level preparing you for what's to come. However, the level tends to slow to a crawl no matter how many tricks you've learned or how many shortcuts you can find. There are level elements that will have you stand completely still or otherwise wait for platforms to move. Considering Sonic is a game about constant movement in one way or another, usually at a brisk pace, this feels like the antithesis to that. Thankfully, Spring Yard Zone can be a lot of fun, as I've touched upon earlier. Its overall bounciness and challenging enemy and hazard placement make it a breath of fresh air after slogging through Marble Zone. In Act 3, there's a cool jump you can perform while rolling down the first slope to bypass a section right away. I always loved figuring that one out. Unfortunately, the curse of Marble Zone seems to linger throughout a lot of Sonic's level design from here. Spring Yard suffers from this a bit with its slow-moving block patterns, even if there are usually ways to avoid them, a first playthrough will most likely lead to players dealing with them anyway. On top of that, the level is a bit too punishing with its beginner's traps. The spinning mines that go underneath the level in tight corridors are just evil. Speaking of evil, Spring Yard Zone is immediately followed by Labyrinth Zone. Designing a level around Sonic's greatest weakness isn't inherently a terrible idea, it's the execution that ruins it. We all know the pain, sluggishly jumping around underwater trying to avoid hazards and getting crushed, all while having to worry about your oxygen. There is some exploration here, but very little speed. The water is an unavoidable problem that you must face, and I think we all have some shared trauma here. Personally, my trauma is linked to the boss section of Act 3. If you die here, you will not have access to a single ring until you climb to the top. You can grab a shield, but that's it. You have to avoid all of these obstacles and outrun the water, which makes you slower once you've submerged, all without getting hit by anything. At the end of the zone, you'd better not get a game over. It's stuff like this that makes me understanding of those that hate this game. I have no idea what the team was going for here. I enjoy the concepts of managing oxygen and finding ways to rise above the water, but this was not the way to go about implementing them. In contrast, Starlight Zone feels like a reward for climbing out of Labyrinth Zone. It is full of awesome design elements for gaining speed, and it feels like a much more suitable test of your abilities up to this point. And although Scrap Brain Zone has elements that are reminiscent of the worst of the previous levels like this slow bit in Act 1, and this repetitive section in Act 2 with the ball hogs, as well as obnoxious design elements like the electricity and disappearing platforms, I genuinely think it has some great ideas like the spinning wheels that launch you if you roll on them, or the obstacles that hang out by the treadmills. 
But then the game deliberately sends you back to Labyrinth Zone for Scrap Brain Act 3, in the longest underwater labyrinth yet. So yeah, overall, Sonic the Hedgehog certainly is a roller coaster, but not in the way Yasuhara and the team intended. While attempting to balance speed and platforming, it feels as though they isolated the two of them and alternated between them with each level. None of the levels come close to touching the brilliance of Green Hill. I think the game offers glimpses into what can happen when the game engine and level designs intersect, as made apparent in Green Hill Zone, but this isn't always the case. But this video is about why I love Classic Sonic. I've gone on about how beautiful this game can get. Green Hill was an incredible achievement with its rewarding exploration and the sense of speed that was achievable. The game engine is capable of exhilarating gameplay when complemented by brilliant level design. There was no reason to think that it wouldn't get any better from there. If they were to unify these concepts consistently, build on the foundation of exploration and speed, create some exciting and memorable set pieces, and expand on the art and settings in which the game takes place, we could have one of the best platformers of all time on our hands. In 1992, that game would finally come to be. However, the original Sonic team couldn't have done it by themselves. Yuji Naka quit Sega after finishing Sonic the Hedgehog due to issues with management. At the same time, Mark Cerny had recently formed the Sega Technical Institute in the United States. You may know him for being the lead designer of the PlayStation 4 and 5, and for being a key player in the release of Crash Bandicoot and Spyro the Dragon at Universal Interactive Studios. Cerny proved to be the catalyst for the development of Sonic's follow-up. His vision for STI was to combine American and Japanese design philosophies. And while in Japan recruiting developers for his new studio, he heard about Naka's departure from Sega. Cerny visited him at his apartment and listened to why he left. Arguments over his salary, the credit he received for the final product, and the time and effort it took to finish it in the first place. Cerny promised him more money and creative control, to which Naka agreed. Cerny had also secured Yasuhara, meaning two of the three original Sonic Team members were ready to go. Naoto Oshima chose to stay behind in Japan, and he'd end up working on a separate Sonic game. More on that later. STI worked on other projects while waiting for the arrival of Naka, Yasuhara, and other Japanese developers, but when the time was right, Cerny would pitch a Sonic the Hedgehog sequel to Sega. Eventually, that day came. He pitched the game for a holiday 1992 release, and Sega said no. Apparently, it was much too soon for a sequel to Sonic. So members of STI were twiddling their thumbs for two months, until Sega suddenly reversed that decision and said, oops, yeah, please make that game. By the time they had received this news, it meant that they only had roughly nine months to complete the game, and they just barely met that deadline in the end. But it proved to be just enough time for the team to pour their hearts and souls into it. The original Sonic the Hedgehog was a team effort, and Sonic the Hedgehog 2 is a testament to that. With a fusion of American and Japanese creative and design philosophies, STI got to work creating the ultimate follow-up to Sonic the Hedgehog. Yuji Naka wanted to implement a two-player mode this time around after being unable to do so in the first game, and Yasuhara felt that the second player could also run alongside Sonic in the main game so that siblings could play together. An internal contest was held to see who could come up with the best sidekick to Sonic, much like the original contest that gave birth to Sonic himself. In the end, the winner was character and level artist Yasushi Yamaguchi with his two-tailed fox. He wanted to name him Miles Prower, a corny play on the term Miles Per Hour, 
but everyone else felt that a better name for the little guy was simply Tails. He did sneak in references to the original name across Sonic 2, ultimately making both names official. I love Tails. In some regard, I have more of a fondness for him than I do Luigi. Let me explain. For many years, Luigi existed as nothing more than a palette swap of Mario. The occasional spin-off games would attempt to flesh him out, but nothing really stuck. By the time the Nintendo 64 came out, Luigi wasn't even sharing the spotlight with Mario anymore. It wouldn't be until Luigi's Mansion, 16 years after his appearance in Super Mario Bros., that a charmingly timid and kind-hearted personality would be established for him. His characterization in the Luigi's Mansion games is top-notch, and a huge reason why I became so attached to him. But this was a retroactive decision. Tails was killing it from the get-go. Despite being younger and barely able to keep up with Sonic, he's a genius for his age. He designed a plane for him and Sonic to storm the Death Egg, and he saves Sonic with the plane after he falls out of the sky at the end of the game, at least in the normal ending. I also think his design is adorable through and through, and it serves a purpose. With his fur being orange, it perfectly complements Sonic's blue, and his overall reserved personality is a nice contrast to Sonic's way-past-cool vibe. These days, I tend to turn Tails off in the options menu because he can put you in danger during boss battles and cost you rings in the special stages. But sometimes I leave him on as a reminder of what he used to represent. Tails was intentionally implemented so that younger siblings could feel as though they were on the adventure with their older sibling. They can fumble about and be of great help in boss battles and special stages, but they aren't going to be accomplishing much in zones. Growing up, my brother used to play along as best he could with a second controller, and seeing Tails help Sonic during the final encounter with a Death Egg was a pretty powerful moment for him. I get a little emotional thinking about those days when I was just a kid that loved Sonic, and he just wanted to be a part of that. Tails was an incredibly identifiable sidekick back then, and they would continue to flesh him out in future games. In Sonic 3, he could pick Sonic up and carry him as he flies around, and his narrative in Sonic Adventure focuses on him learning how to be independent from Sonic when he needs to do things by himself. As Tails grew, the younger siblings grew with him, and even though I was in Sonic's position back in the day, even I took notice of how lovable and identifiable Tails was for those in his shoes. Tails wasn't the only brilliant idea to come out of STI. Both the American and Japanese staff were brimming with ideas for levels and mechanics. The team wanted to absolutely fill this game with levels, and while the final product certainly features a plethora of unique level themes, a handful of ideas had to be cut, and multiple artists, mostly the American ones, didn't have a chance for their art to make it into the final game. All of the levels designed by Brenda Ross, a wood zone, a winter zone, and a desert zone, were scrapped completely. Many of Tom Paine's sprites went unused, and his art for the scrapped Genocide City Zone would only see the light of day in the spin-off game Sonic Spinball. As an aside, that name would be changed as the Japanese team member that named it didn't quite have a grasp on what that word meant. I would say the name change was probably for the best. The American artists getting their work cut was representative of a cultural divide that persisted throughout Sonic 2's development. Mark Cerny's vision for unified design philosophies did not come without hiccups. Most meetings for the game were conducted in Japanese, and although the meetings were led by Cerny himself, the Americans were left a bit lost. The American and Japanese staff also had critically different philosophies on work in general. While the Americans were used to the typical 9-5 working hours, the Japanese devs would work through the night due to their acclimation to crunch. So although there were difficulties in unifying the team, and there was some debate over why exactly the American art was usually first on the chopping block, truth be told, plenty of things were cut from Sonic 2 for a number of reasons, as its ambition could not be realized in the time allotted to them. 
For example, Yasuhara once outlined a time travel idea for the game, and the large amount of stages they initially wanted to feature would have presented a cohesive progression in that narrative. This was a rough, unfinished concept, but it helped guide the eventual look of the stages in Sonic 2. Remnants of this concept do appear in the final game, though, as Hilltop Zone features dinosaurs and an active volcano, while Chemical Plant Zone is no doubt a reflection of the damage Eggman had done to the environment. Overall, the concepts the team managed to come up with are enthralling, and it's a shame that not everything could be fully realized. But without a doubt, the most infamous scrapped element from Sonic 2's development was unquestionably the Hidden Palace Zone. Featuring art by future Spyro the Dragon and Ratchet and & Clank artist Craig Stitt, this elusive zone was heavily featured in promotional materials, even being partially playable in leaked prototypes. The incredible use of color in the material we do have access to makes me wish we could have seen this in the final game. I love the way the bridge lights up as Sonic walks over it. I see a lot of the influence that this level eventually had on Stitt's work for Spyro, with the sparkling gem-like appearance and strong use of ethereal color coordination. The level's purpose was even more intriguing, though. After collecting all seven Chaos Emeralds, the player would be warped to the zone, and they'd have to navigate it in order to unlock Supersonic. Now, we'll talk about the importance of Supersonic later, but just the idea that the Hidden Palace is guarding such incredible power, and it's a secret that you unearth through the demonstration of your skills? It just sounds so awesome! But the only remnant of the level accessible by normal means is the music associated with it via the sound test. Truly a shame to have lost out on this place. If it wasn't already obvious, I am fascinated by the development of these games. This is true for other games I love too. Zelda, Mario, Metroid, and especially anything by Valve. But there is an aura of intrigue surrounding this era of Sonic that we haven't seen since. Perhaps this is due to the absence of the internet in the 90s, so fans usually have to go digging for information surrounding games from this era. But I also think it's because I really admire the work that went into solidifying these games as classics. Back then, these people were just a group of developers trying to make it happen. It's a passion that I will always respect, and it's one that I think has been passed on to the generations of Sonic fans that have played their games. And in the end, when the game had finally been released, the team celebrated together, finally being able to put aside their differences and be proud of the work they'd done. The game shattered sales records and cemented Sonic as a cultural phenomenon. Oh, and as for the game itself? It's one of my all-time favorites. Sonic the Hedgehog 2 is such a dramatic improvement that it nearly renders the original game obsolete. Sonic's speed cap has been lifted, meaning that he can actually outrun the screen if he's moving fast enough. To encourage high speeds, the levels usually have much less vertical exploration, instead focusing on branching routes that occasionally intersect. It's all about giving the player options and exploration without sacrificing speed. Emerald Hill Zone can balance fast-moving set pieces and tricky obstacles on all of its potential routes without having to slow the player down. It balances corkscrews, spike traps, bouncing on springs, disruptive enemy patterns, and sequential loop-de-loops beautifully. Aquatic Ruins' two main routes both offer completely different experiences, with the top route rewarding those skilled enough to avoid the water. Even if you end up in the water, it's clear the designers learned from the mistakes made with Labyrinth Zone, because they still enable you to go fast underwater. 
you can create plenty of opportunities for yourself to just zoom on by, thanks to the flat route design and the springs that give you a boost. The possibility of gaining speed in the lower route also makes managing oxygen a much fairer prospect than it ever was before. Mystic Cave Zone is designed to be claustrophobic and filled with traps, while also giving players the freedom to play with slopes to find alternate paths and whatnot. Despite the amount of stuff they've crammed into this place, going fast is simply a matter of knowing when to jump, when to roll, and when to use the springs, as always. Just from looking at the levels I'm discussing, I'm sure you can agree, nearly all of the levels in this game strike a perfect balance on speed and exploration without significantly altering the pacing, and almost all of them have their own identity through art direction and unique level design concepts. On top of that, almost all of them have only two acts instead of three, so it feels like there's never a quiet moment. You're always on the move, and you're always experiencing something new. Casino Night Zone places Sonic in a series of pinball machines, and its plethora of half-pipes and opportunities for major air all harken back to the best examples of Sonic 1's physics engine. Oil Ocean Zone makes it a challenge to stay on the top routes away from the oil, and even if you manage to stay up there, it isn't always easy to maintain your rings. Even Hilltop Zone, despite just seeming like a blue reskin of Emerald Hill with lava, knows how to keep players moving. On multiple occasions, the terrain will shift or lava will rise, forcing players to do their platforming as quickly as possible. But at the same time, you can also branch off during these segments and be rewarded for it with rings, a shield, or an invincibility monitor. Along with the streamlined level design, the spin dash was implemented to help strike that balance between going fast and looking around. By holding down and mashing a button, you can charge up a burst of speed. This is a godsend for shooting Sonic up sloped surfaces and ramming through enemies, and jumping out of a spin dash can allow you to reach places that you might not be able to reach normally. While it doesn't serve as a replacement for building up momentum while rolling in a halfpipe or down a slope, and its addition does take away some of the depth that Sonic 1 had with its momentum-based gameplay loop, it makes exploring levels and overall navigation way more fun, which benefits the overall design of Sonic 2. Now, Sonic 2 is a much more open-ended game than Sonic 1. We're talking Green Hill Zone level stuff consistently without sacrificing speed. It has routes that deliver a lightning-fast platforming experience for those just getting into the game, routes that require you to think on your feet, as demonstrated in places like Oil Ocean, Mystic Cave, or Aquatic Ruin, but it also rewards those looking for something more with the addition of the legendary Supersonic. While I may have given the impression earlier that Emerald Hill was just designed to encourage high-speed platforming in all of its routes, it is also one of the greatest tutorials for how careful exploration can reward you in Sonic 2. Aside from the hidden extra lives and other optional goodies you can find by getting creative, or by learning more about the game with each playthrough, there's also these checkpoints. While they seem to just be respawn points for when you die, they can also serve as this game's giant rings. If you cross a checkpoint with 50 rings, a dancing star circle will appear, and you can jump into it to access one of this game's special stages. Let's talk about these special stages for a moment. You collect rings and avoid mines in a halfpipe. It's a common trope among Sonic games now, but Sonic 2s were the first, and I still think they're awesome. They're not designed to be blown through, they're tough, and require a lot of memorization to get right. Practice will help you get through them. As soon as I learned that you can jump to alternate between the sides of the halfpipe, I stopped trying to swerve through bombs. There are times where the rings are lined up for you to do that, but other times it's painfully obvious what pattern they want you to get into. In hindsight, that is. These special stages can get pretty difficult, but the more you play, the better you get. Much like the main game. These are a far cry from the special stages in Sonic 1. 
No matter how good I got at those stages, there's only so much you can do when you don't always have full control over your actions. That and they got a little too nauseating for me. In addition, you could only access them at the end of Acts 1 and 2 for the first 5 zones. This means you only had 10 attempts at the 6 Chaos Emeralds, and all for a slightly different ending. In Sonic 2, there are 62 checkpoints. That's 6 times as many attempts at the Chaos Emeralds, some of them being placed along the main path as a reward for hanging onto your rings, and the rest of them being hidden away as a reward for thinking outside of the box. Even if there are 7 emeralds in this game, the sheer amount of attempts you have, the difficulty in the stages themselves, the improvement that they inspire, and the reward that you are granted for clearing them all, make collecting the emeralds a tremendously exciting endeavor to take on. Now, no matter the result of a special stage, all of the rings in the zone you're in will respawn as soon as you are transported back. This means that you could explore as much as you like within the time limit, collect some more rings, and find another checkpoint over and over again. There are 7 Chaos Emeralds in Sonic 2. Guess how many checkpoints there are in Emerald Hill? 3 in Act 1 and 5 in Act 2. 8 in total. Know what this means? If you have completely mastered Sonic 2, you can unlock Super Sonic before you even set foot in level 2. This is why there are checkpoints in oddball places across Emerald Hill. I mean, why else would there be a checkpoint up on this floating platform with no enemies in sight? Or on top of a loop a la Sonic 1? Once I had taken the time to look around Emerald Hill Zone like I did with Green Hill, I began to see all of my favorite zones in an entirely new light. Take Chemical Plant for example. I adore this level. At first it may seem like it's all about the exhilarating spectacle with its many slopes, loops, and springs. It also has a plethora of alternate routes and secret paths that reward experimentation with the physics engine and a bit of curiosity to balance everything out. Your first look into alternate paths in Chemical Plant comes during those primary routes. As you're speeding through, you'll catch glimpses of ring boxes and checkpoints. This got me thinking about what would happen if I took things a bit slower and followed the rings that act as guides. In Act 1, if you take the lower path at the beginning, you'll be led through to an area where you need to platform over moving blocks. If you fall down or decide to follow the path of rings below the blocks, you'll likely land in or next to a speed booster, which shoots you right into a checkpoint. Pretty cool, but there's even more lying in wait. If you keep heading right and decide to fall below the track, you'll be rewarded with another checkpoint. Then you can keep that momentum going by timing a jump or finding an alternate route in order to reach these moving platforms, which leads you to another checkpoint. But let's say you don't really like this careful exploration. Let's say you're more of a fan of being rewarded for good platforming and collecting rings along the main path. You'll be a fan of how worthwhile Aquatic Ruin Act 2 feels. If you manage to stay above the water by maintaining your momentum and using good timing, you'll find at least two checkpoints waiting for you, although there could be more. Honestly, there are countless examples of this throughout Sonic 2, and I don't want to spoil the locations of every checkpoint, or how to get them. I think collecting enough rings and finding them in the first place is all part of the learning process. Not to mention, it increases replay value exceptionally as you continue to improve with each playthrough. And in the end, when you finally nab that 7th Chaos Emerald, collect 50 rings, jump into the air and hit A, BAM! Super Sonic is yours to use whenever you like. He can run much faster, jump much higher, and is invincible to nearly everything in the game. Of course, Supersonic still has his limitations in practice. Metropolis Zone is the only level in the game with three acts, and it's relentless. The enemy placement is hellish, and they do everything in their power to prevent you from hanging onto your rings. Thus, no Supersonic. Thankfully, the years of abuse I've suffered by the enemy's hands have paid off. 
I can usually predict when they're going to show up and dodge them. Slicers are useless after they attack, and you know what? I don't pity them. They can go to hell. While you can get supersonic this late in the game, he is best appreciated when you get knowledgeable and skilled enough at the game to unlock him early. And that is precisely what makes Sonic 2 so much fun to play. No matter how you decide to approach each level, there will always be something that gels with you. If you decide to challenge yourself to improve, the game will always have challenges in spades, and it'll eventually reward you to take them on. No matter how you like to find checkpoints, there will always be one that suits your preferred playstyle, and that is simply beautiful. I'm at the point now where I can get five Chaos Emeralds in Emerald Hill. Shoot! Ah, well, almost five. And I'm at that point simply from replaying Sonic 2 over and over again to discover new things. For example, Chemical Plant Zone Act 2. This infamous set piece right here. You're rolling along and then the game traps you in a corridor with rising water and moving blocks. This part is infamous for inducing anxiety, and I think it's brilliant. If the player hadn't already become familiar with the oxygen meter, they will here. The only way to escape drowning is to climb as best you can. What's even cooler about this segment, though, is that if you are familiar enough with platforming and thinking on your feet in this game, you can actually outrun the water completely and carry on with the rest of the level. It's another example of how Sonic 2 reflects the player's improvement with each playthrough. And you know what's even better? You can completely skip this section by finding an alternate route that leads you straight to the zone's boss. I didn't know about this until I was writing this video, but if you stop before entering the loops that shoot you into that section, you can perform a spin dash jump into a secret route. There's plenty of rings, a quick bit of spectacle, invincibility for the boss fight, and a checkpoint as a reward for finding the route in the first place. Which means another shot at a Chaos Emerald. Like Sonic 1, the more you play, the better you get. The longer you can hold on to rings, the more shots you'll have at a special stage. The more you experiment with the level design, the more secrets you'll find. The more rings you get, the faster you go, the higher your score. Which means more extra lives and continues for you when the hardest levels and boss fights come about. And as established through the diverse level design I've discussed already, a balance of the two core elements that define Sonic as a game are so impeccably consistent in Sonic 2 that it becomes embedded into your psyche. The feedback loop of running and jumping in different ways to reach shortcuts and find secrets is so compelling that you can't help but want to replay this game over and over again. God, I love this game. Even the ending is kick-ass in comparison to Sonic 1. You and Tails give chase in the tornado, and while this auto-scrolling section does get a little boring, the setting is inspiring. Wing Fortress Zone, however, completely subverts expectations with its deadly, calculated platforming no matter the route you take. It's an intense level, but it serves as an entree to the meal you're about to take on. Upon climbing aboard the Death Egg, you'll quickly realize that you have no rings. You'll have to beat Silver Sonic and the Death Egg robot without taking a single hit. This is where those extra lives and continues you racked up are meant to come in handy, although the levels preceding this one will have definitely taken their toll. While it's not terribly difficult to find a pattern with Silver Sonic, the Death Egg robot is a nightmare to figure out. Growing up, it took me ages to get past the final boss of Sonic 2. I did learn how to get two free shots on the robot's booty, and I memorized the trick to some of his patterns, but I would die over and over again trying to find the sweet spot. If you're too close to the exhaust, you die. If you're too close to its hands, you die. With Sonic's natural jump arc being countered, it's pretty difficult to find the right spot. Then it hit me. The spin dash jump. I had used it in the past so many times to reach places I would never be able to access otherwise. With enough space to pull one off, 
I could easily land hits on the robot. Eventually, I was able to manipulate his landing pattern so that I'd have enough space to jump, and I finally took him down. Probably one of the most satisfying finales to any video game I've ever played. That beautiful dreams come true ending theme plays as you fly alongside the tornado. Even on my, oh, I don't know, 100,000th playthrough of Sonic 2, it still felt so gratifying to finish. Not only because I had mastered the boss itself, but also because I had mastered the game to such an extent that I could collect so many rings, find all those checkpoints, unlock Supersonic to play with, and do it all at lightning fast speeds. No matter your level of experience with a Sonic game, I believe you can have a good time with Sonic 2. With its much stronger and much more focused level design, the game not only consistently delivers on speed in diverse ways, but it also accommodates exploration in both its levels and mechanics. With its strong Chaos Emerald-based feedback loop, there are always plenty of opportunities for you to improve, and the level design will reward your tenacity time and again. The art design is stellar, the story is simplistic yet charming, and the music is infectiously catchy. But I'm sure you know all about that by now. I cherish so many of the memories I made with this game. As silly as it seems, one of my fondest is with one of the most infamous hazards in Sonic history, the Pit. Most pits are bottomless in Sonic and kill you instantly. This one, however, forces you to face your mistake and slowly watch as Sonic first loses his rings to the spikes, and then finally dies. But that's just with normal Sonic. If you fall in there with Super Sonic? Yeah. With that said, it's a beginner's trap that I will always find amusing. Anyway, that's Sonic 2. It's a miracle that it turned out to be this fantastic considering the circumstances that brought it to life. Although the original Sega Genesis version has aged like a fine wine, I personally recommend the Android and iOS ports by Christian Whitehead and Simon Tomley. They have a ton of quality of life features, and they are easily my favorite way to play Sonic 2. Aw, oh, damn it! Into the pit I go! Thank you. While Sonic the Hedgehog 2 was an excellent game, its feedback loop did have some holes. For starters, the checkpoint system. It's awesome, but their frequency and ease of access at times, especially when you consider the fact that rings respawn as soon as you return from a special stage, is a bit too forgiving. Of course, you aren't going to notice this right away, after all, the designers did everything in their power to make maintaining high ring counts a challenge, and the special stages are no walk in the park. But when you're at that point where you can get supersonic in the first three levels, the rest of the game's level design loses its edge as you break it in half with your new golden hedgehog form. Really though, all they had to do with the Sonic formula was iron out that last flaw. Little did we know, however, the team was about to do far more than just that. Of course, this did not come easily for them. Sega Technical Institute split in half after finishing Sonic 2. One half was composed of American staff, while the other half was Japanese. Apparently, Mark Cerny's idea for a unity of philosophies didn't exactly work out. Part of this was due to Yuji Naka's problems working with the American side of STI on Sonic 2. Some former staff recalled Naka as a difficult person to work with, 
and it's likely that he wanted to avoid a repeat of that with the next game. In contrast, the team didn't feel that way about Yasuhara, and as it turned out, this likely foreshadowed his and Naka's relationship allegedly becoming strained as they worked together. After work on this new Sonic game concluded, Yasuhara elected to stay in America as Naka would leave for Japan. But before that partnership would come to an end, they would collaborate one last time, along with some new enthusiastic faces like Takashi Izuka, the man who would eventually direct, produce, or otherwise be involved with nearly every Sonic game to come, and Jun Sanoe, whom you may know better by the sound of his guitar. Once again, the team had great ambitions for this new Sonic game. 14 zones, all bigger than anything the series had seen thus far. Sega's marketing, however, had other plans. In preparation for the release of Sonic 3, they pushed Sonic everywhere. McDonald's, Lifesavers, he was even the first video game character to be featured in the Macy's Day Parade. Indeed, Sonic was a phenomenon, and Sega wanted the game to come out to coincide with Groundhog Day in 1994. Hedgehog Day, they called it. So the game was split in two, with the second half releasing in October of that year. Of course, I'm sure we all know the story. Sonic the Hedgehog 3 and Sonic and & Knuckles are not separate experiences. When combined with the team's special lock-on tech, the game becomes Sonic 3 & Knuckles, the complete experience as the developers always intended. Now, the signs that Sonic 3 was initially released in an incomplete state were always there. There are only six zones, and the ending to that final zone feels rather anticlimactic. On top of that, the level select in Sonic 3, while being notoriously difficult to unlock, also contains levels that aren't even playable. It was a complete and utter mystery. For a few months, anyway. Today, when someone is talking about Sonic 3, they're referring to Sonic 3 and Knuckles, and for good reason. Sonic 3 and Knuckles is what I would call the definitive Sonic the Hedgehog game and easily one of my favorite games of all time. Building on the excellent foundation of Sonic 2, Sonic 3's levels are thematically rich, reasonably massive, and thrillingly fast. Every single level feels wonderfully distinct in appearance, layout, mechanics, and the nature in which they create speed and manage pacing. But in order to fully appreciate them, we need to talk about how they've implemented Super Sonic this time. The Golden Boy returns once more, and he is unlocked through a more accessible yet arguably more challenging system. Hidden across each level are giant rings. There's no prerequisite for making them appear this time. All you gotta do is find them. They're often placed in well-hidden areas that require considerable knowledge of your abilities and how the levels are laid out, but Angel Island Zone eases you into their existence fairly well. The very first giant ring is tucked away behind some rocks. The game teaches you that these rocks can be broken, and if you spin dash into them, bam, there it is. There's also one situated in a similar area after the island catches fire, and another at the beginning of Act 2 if you spin dash into the tunnel right away and zoom over the collapsing bridge. Angel Island is a perfect first level in that regard. While its second act does branch out significantly, it isn't overwhelming right off the bat. As for the special stages themselves, wow. They managed to create a pretty engrossing game within a game here. In concept, it seems pretty simple. You're constantly moving, and you need to collect the blue spheres while avoiding the red ones. The longer you take, the faster you move. If need be, you can also jump to avoid certain spheres. Usually, the stages are designed in such a way that there is a pattern you can follow. But with your speed increasing as the levels go on, it becomes more and more difficult to think on your feet and use lightning-fast reflexes. The levels eventually go on to take a substantial amount of memorization, practice, and fast-paced puzzle-solving to get right. 
which means you're gonna mess up a lot. As such, you gotta keep looking out for more rings. Thankfully, there are 77 giant rings in total, but because of their secretive hiding places, I've only been able to locate just over a quarter of them in my lifetime. I'm still finding new giant rings to this day. While recording footage for this video, I found a giant ring I had never known about with Knuckles in an underwater portion of Ice Cap Zone. I had no idea they would think to hide one down there, but that's just it. Sonic 3 really wants you to think outside of the box, and it is the best at doing that in the series' history. With every playthrough, I'm able to unlock Super Sonic faster. Not just because I'm able to locate more giant rings each time, but also because I'm able to beat the special stages consistently despite their increase in challenge. Like the games that came before it, Sonic 3 excels at making you feel the improvement in your proficiency at the game. Alongside Sonic, you can also play as Tails and newcomer Knuckles the Echidna, which adds another layer of depth and complexity to both level design and your own approach to the game. You can have Tails fly wherever he wants, and while Knuckles can't jump as high, he can glide and climb walls to access routes inaccessible to Sonic and Tails. Tails is great for familiarizing yourself with levels from an explorative standpoint, as his power of flight is perfect for surveying areas that Sonic would normally require speed and momentum to reach. Knuckles usually goes through his own special routes over the course of his campaign, which means exclusive giant rings, but he also has his own uses through the usual Sonic and Tails routes. If it weren't already abundantly clear, this game is colossal in scope. And when you factor in the supersonic feedback loop that this game has going for it, the magnificent level design of Sonic 3 becomes all the more impressive. Hydro City Zone has several opportunities for players to create speed, and you can use that speed to run on water and launch yourself to new heights in secret areas. But it still slows down when necessary with water-based hazards and enemies littered across its higher routes. It is a prime example of how speed and creativity can be used to find hidden goodies. Marble Garden Zone has plenty of steep slopes for gaining sublime levels of momentum, but it is also a ridiculously detailed labyrinth with plenty of methods for accessing its secrets, as well as tricky routes with spikes, enemies, and spinning balls on chains to be wary of. There are so many giant rings in Marble Garden Zone that the level can feel like a Metroid game in terms of layout. This theme continues into Carnival Night Zone, which features some circus-inspired set pieces and mechanics, endless optional routes, and momentum generated through a series of slopes, boosters, spinning columns, balloons, the wheels from Sonic 1. It's jam-packed with things to mess with, but its compact routes make scouting for giant rings more manageable, and a healthy way to balance things out. Ice Cap Zone has a remarkable progression in ideas, and it's one of my favorite levels in the game. It begins with an iconic snowboarding sequence, but after you crash and find yourself at the base of the mountain, you have to somehow make your way up to the summit. The level employs a lot of problem-solving and careful platforming in both its main route and in finding giant rings, and a slip-up can cost you time as you'll have to climb back up the mountain. After you finally make it to Act 2, the game rewards you with level design that focuses on the simplistic joy of creating speed and using it to your advantage, as well as the music that symbolizes your arrival at the summit. Launch Base Zone balances that problem-solving and tight platforming with some spectacle thanks to its high-speed antics. Mushroom Hill Zone is just as open-ended as it is exhilarating to rush through. Flying Battery Zone is just as intoxicatingly fast as it is crushingly difficult and claustrophobic. And the music is one of the best compositions you'll ever hear come out of a Sega Genesis.
Lava Reef Zone continues to ramp up the difficulty and stuffiness in its level design and hazard placement, but its moderate pacing makes this more manageable and invite more opportunities for you to search for giant rings. Even this late in the game, as Lava Reef is the last traditional zone in which you can look for them. Lava Reef, in both of its acts, has so many giant rings to find that I was able to find the majority I needed for the second half of my playthrough there. Again, it's absolutely staggering how much they accommodate every playstyle in these levels. Even as the levels get harder and it becomes more difficult to hang on to your rings, the giant rings don't get any more difficult to locate. They are always hidden in similar ways, and they are always balanced in a reasonable manner. Some are easy to locate for beginners, some require an adequate proficiency in the game's mechanics and level layouts, and then some of them are hidden for those that can really think outside of the box, like that instance at Ice Cap Zone with Knuckles. Of course, if you're not one for stressing over the giant rings in special stages, much like Sonic 2, the game will still have more than enough awesome video game to offer. Exploration is also made more accessible through the Elemental Shields. To compensate for Tails and Knuckles' abilities, Sonic also has some new toys to play with. Although the Insta-Shield can help you take out enemies in a pinch with some good timing, it doesn't exactly compete with Tails and Knuckles' abilities. The Elemental Shields do, though. The Fire Shield lets you perform a mid-air dash and survive fire hazards, the Electric Shield draws rings toward you, gives you a double jump, and protects you from electricity, while the Bubble Shield lets you breathe underwater and perform a bounce to get up higher than your jump would normally allow. In certain levels, searching for these things can become a priority, outside of the exploration advantages they offer. Having a Bubble Shield in Hydro City Zone makes the underwater sections a breeze. The Electric Shield is a godsend in Flying Battery, and the Fire Shield is almost a necessity in Lava Reef. So even if you don't want to use them as assistants in searching for giant rings, you can use them to just barrel through acts as a reward for finding them in the first place. All that's left is to not lose them. With all of these shields and characters to play with, and on top of the endless replayability that Sonic games historically enable and encourage, Sonic 3 & Knuckles is a rare game that I'll never tire of playing. Of course, I groan whenever I reach Sandopolis due to its excessive length and confusing layout, but it's not enough to derail any of my playthroughs over the years. This game is a perfection of the Sonic formula. And it gets even better. So, we know how the Chaos Emeralds work in this game, and we have a general idea of why the system they've implemented works so well. But the truth is, it is much bigger than a simple 7 Emerald hunt. And to talk about that, we must first discuss the story of Sonic 3 & Knuckles. Sonic the Hedgehog 2 gave us a glimpse into what Sonic games could be like with a bit of heart backing its basic narrative, all thanks to Tails. But Sonic 3's narrative, while simplistic, reveals itself in an endearing way that eventually ties itself into gameplay. All without the characters saying a single word. As soon as you start a new game, Sonic and Tails will ride above the ocean in the tornado. Then Sonic jumps off and goes super, flying alongside Tails. All they have to do is show you what Sonic can do for you to want to collect the Chaos Emeralds. Knuckles proves to be a nuisance alongside Eggman, impeding your progress at every turn up until launch base zone. It seems silly in hindsight that Sonic 3 ends here because Knuckles falling over and the Death Egg being prevented from launching isn't all that special of an ending. Nor does it explain who Knuckles is or why he's doing what he is. It wasn't until Sonic 3 and Knuckles came to be that the answers would be made clear. Upon entering Mushroom Hill Zone, you'll see Knuckles exit from a hidden door. Behind that door is a super ring that leads to this game's hidden palace, complete with the Master Emerald and pedestals for a collection of new emeralds. Here's where things get interesting from a narrative standpoint and especially a gameplay standpoint. First of all, 
Knuckles is guarding some pretty powerful gems here, and the fact that he's involved with Eggman is bad news. I mean, who knows what these things could be capable of? Well, the best part about that is you can find out for yourself. In the second half of Sonic 3, the giant rings become super rings that lead to the hidden palace. Once you hop into one, you can choose any special stage you want. This is a welcome decision because as you might have guessed, the special stages are pretty difficult in this half of the game. Rather than repeating the same one over and over again and continuing to fail, you can try an entirely new one or attempt one that you've already become familiar with on a separate playthrough. Completing one of these special stages will grant you a Super Emerald, and collecting seven of them unlocks a new Hyper Transformation for Sonic or Knuckles. However, choosing to enter a Super Ring at any point will prevent you from using your Super Form until the true final boss, as the power of the seven Chaos Emeralds is what causes the Super Emeralds to appear in the first place. This isn't made apparent to you in-game, but it does give you a choice. Either continue to use your traditional super form and blitz through the rest of the game, or you could challenge yourself. Guarantee that Eggman never gets the chance to harness the power of the emeralds. Continue to unearth the hidden rings, master the hardest special stages, and grant yourself unlimited power. This is Sonic 3 & Knuckles' final test for players to achieve their mark of mastery, and it is oh so sweet. To be honest, it took me many years to finally unlock Hypersonic. I could never master the patterns and layouts of the special stages, and the overall difficulty of the levels in the and Knuckles half of Sonic 3 made it hard for me to find the Super Rings. But as the years went by, I got better at the game. With every playthrough, I was accomplishing new feats and making new discoveries. When I was at the point where I could unlock Supersonic and Hydro City Zone, I knew I could finally do it. Eventually, I went all out. I dug deep into the level design and kept finding new things. I stagnated around four or five Super Emeralds initially and couldn't find any in Sandopolis, but I pressed onward knowing that Lava Reef was designed for players to jog rather than sprint and take detours along the way. After missing so many Super Rings and failing so many special stages, I pulled it off. I unlocked Hypersonic for the first time and I was completely overjoyed. He can move even faster than Supersonic, and his mid-air dash is a screen nuke. One hell of a reward to mess around with, and I'll never forget how happy I was to finally conquer the Super Emerald Hunt. Of course, the other characters have forms to play with too. Hyper Knuckles, for example, can glide ridiculously fast and destroy all enemies on screen as soon as he connects with a wall. Because of that, I began to use his glide all the time to beat stages as fast as I could. Tails, however, is in an interesting spot. Tails doesn't get a super form with the Chaos Emeralds. It takes super emeralds for that kid to go super. The end result, though, transforms Tails into the Grim Reaper himself. Super Tails. If an invincible flying fox wasn't enough, Tails summons a flock of flickies while transformed that will home in and kill anything in sight. In almost every boss fight, you don't need to do a damn thing. The flickies will do everything for you, and the game will essentially crumble as the flickies kill most of the enemies you pass in stages. Yeah. The Super Emeralds are worth it. The decision to include Hyper Forms also keeps the game's later difficulty in check. If you choose to go for the Super Emeralds and 100% completion, you won't be able to use your Super Forms anymore as mentioned. This means that you'll have less opportunities to blitz over the more challenging areas of the game. While it was rewarding in Sonic 2 to unlock Supersonic early and tear stages apart, it did make the game a little too easy to replay until you made it to Metropolis, Wing Fortress, and the final boss. Of course, you'd still need to collect rings in order to stay super, but that's nothing. In Sonic 3 & Knuckles, 
Because you can challenge yourself to collect the emeralds one more time here, and the emeralds are much harder to obtain, it keeps things tricky. That, and the levels aren't always about survival. Sometimes they're all about solving puzzles or exploring to find the right path. So hypersonic speed isn't useful all the time. Sure, if you're good enough at Sonic 3 & Knuckles, you can unlock hypersonic and mushroom hill zone and destroy the rest of the game, but I also view that as rewarding due to the tremendous amount of skill it takes to get to that point. I mean, I've been playing Sonic my whole life and I just recently unlocked Hypersonic, and I think that's a testament to the captivating depth of this game. This is why I love classic Sonic gameplay, and especially why I love Sonic 3 & Knuckles. The game enters its climax with Knuckles realizing he'd been tricked by Eggman. Coming together over a common goal, Knuckles sends Sonic and Tails to the alluring Sky Sanctuary which, in addition to some precarious platforming, features a boss rush of some past boss battles with Eggman, portrayed by the mysterious Mecha Sonic. After that, you climb a crumbling spiral staircase to the Death Egg, and this place rocks. Not only is the music incredibly motivating as you move forward into the base, the level itself is tough to clear, hypersonic or not. When all is said and done, you take on the giant Eggman Robo, who I've always favored to the final boss of Sonic 2. It's unquestionably intense in its second phase, but the laser is much easier to create a pattern with. If you've unlocked a transformation for Sonic, your final zone will be the Doomsday Zone, and this has to be my favorite final boss in a Sonic game. If your ring count runs dry, you'll fall through the stratosphere, so it's important to maintain your rings. They don't make this easy though, as you have to collect rings and dodge meteorites while trying to catch up to the final weapon. Once you're close enough, you'll have to redirect rockets into the weapon until it blows up. Now, you gotta do this as fast as possible because no rings will spawn as you're doing it. Then, along comes Eggman with the Master Emerald. You gotta keep on him while collecting rings and continuing to dodge those space rocks. It's tight, and this entire space chase is set to one of the most adrenaline-fueled, climactic Sega Genesis tunes of all time. Depending on your collection of emeralds, you can get one of three endings. If you don't have the seven Chaos Emeralds, you don't enter the Doomsday Zone, and the Master Emerald falls back into Eggman's hands. If you do, you return the Master Emerald to Angel Island, and it rises from the ocean and back into the sky where it belongs. An Egg Robo appears, signaling the beginning of Knuckles' playthrough. However, with the Super Emeralds collected, you can prevent any further intrusion from Eggman and his robots, as well as watch Knuckles bask in the glory of his island once more, seemingly grateful for Sonic and Tails' help. So, collecting the emeralds in Sonic 3 and Knuckles is not only a gratifying quest emblematic of the series' focus on player improvement, but it's also one that you feel compelled to see through to the end due to the immersive consequences of your actions. All of this conveyed without a single line of dialogue. It's hard to say anything new about Sonic 3 and Knuckles, but what is true is that my memories and experiences with this game are intrinsically unique. This game is everything that I once loved about Sonic the Hedgehog, and if this were the last Sonic game ever made, I'd be way more than satisfied. Hirokazu Yasuhara, taking the role of director and lead designer on this game, was finally able to realize his and the original Sonic team's collective vision of what Sonic could be. What defines a Sonic game to me? After revisiting all three of these games, I have an answer. 
When Yuji Naka wanted to make a game that captured the feeling of getting better at Mario, beating stages faster each time, his colleagues took that philosophy and imbued it into all aspects of Sonic's design. If Mario's first level is about teaching players how to own the game, then that's what these entire Sonic games entail. They do this through exceptionally clever level design that challenges players both on a surface level and for wanting something more. The ways I can create speed play a part in what makes levels feel like open sandboxes for experimentation, and the act of going fast on its own makes me want to keep playing, chasing that feeling each time. The ways I can observe levels, learn more about how they're laid out, and reap the rewards for finding new routes and secrets each and every time I play keeps me coming back for more. Not only do I want to collect more rings and beat stages faster, but I also want to see how fast I can unlock Super and Hypersonic each time. To do this, I get better at the special stages, which are also inherently fun to revisit for being entirely different games within the games, and yet they maintain the swift nature of Sonic itself. And finally, this is all rounded out with a vibrant and diverse atmosphere, a lovable cast of characters, and a simplistic yet enthralling narrative with heart. It's something that I'll want to replay for the rest of my life. All of this is what Sonic the Hedgehog is to me. Of course, my attachment to this era of Sonic extends beyond the quality of the games. Let's talk about all that stuff for a moment. The Super Nintendo and the Sega Genesis were the last consoles to have identity in their sound chips, and the Sega Genesis sound is legendary. The composers for Sonic, as you'd expect, took full advantage of the Yamaha FM synthesizer chip inside the console to create not just the iconic rock and electropop that classic Sonic was defined by, but also some captivating and resonant pieces. We've touched upon tracks that suit both of these categories already, but if you want a full breakdown of why I love the music of Sonic, you can check out the video I made a couple of years ago on the subject. Of course, I'm sure plenty of you have already seen it, but in case you haven't, I go into way more detail there. Browsing the extras on Sonic Mega Collection and Sonic Gems Collection reminds me of the obscure media I appreciate from the classic era of Sonic. Sonic Jam on the Sega Saturn was a collection disc with a prototype of a 3D Sonic game built into it, and when I was a kid, I felt like I needed to own a Sega Saturn just for that. Speaking of which, Sonic spin-offs from this era had a lot of charm about them, regardless of their overall quality. It's not like it was in the 2000s and early 2010s where you'd have an oversaturation of Sonic games on every system imaginable. In the 90s, they were relatively harmless experiments that supplemented the excellent main series and sometimes their own merits would shine through. I'm not the biggest fan of Sonic Spinball, but I know plenty of people that love its pinball platforming feedback loop. I've made a video on Sonic R. That game is pretty bad, but I learned to love it anyway through a situation not dissimilar to how you improve at one of the games I discussed in this video. It's all connected, I feel. Have you guys ever seen that Sonic OVA from 1996? I've seen it in both English and Japanese now, and while I don't think the plot is anything special as an adult, I see a lot of potential in it today anyway, and its simplicity was enough to make me fall in love with it as a kid. The animation in the action-oriented scenes is pretty stylish, with each character's personality captured perfectly in their movements, especially for the Blue Blur himself. I remember being giddy watching Sonic run through the forest and plains for the first time, and seeing familiar elements from the games represented. The characters' on-screen antics are without a doubt the best part about this OVA. It's like watching the games come to life. And I also believe a certain Studio Junio animation inspired them here. The environmental artist went wild with some of these places, 
The sheer scope of the location Sonic and Tails visit is unreal. At one point they visit a flooded post-apocalyptic New York City that looks straight out of Akira. Guess they got to it before Sonic Adventure, huh? When Sonic and Tails are alone walking through the streets, it feels so menacing. Reminds me of the feeling I get when I enter a grotto in a Zelda game. As if you're not supposed to be there. The soundtrack has some absolute bops that sound like they could fit right in with the music of Sonic CD. Overall, the vibe of this OVA is perfectly in tune with what I love about the games. And if all that weren't enough, Knuckles' hat! I love his hat way too much. Also, yeah, seeing Sonic and Metal Sonic face off for more than 15 seconds was pretty awesome. But with that said, I feel as though they could have gone much further with the basic concept for this OVA. It probably wasn't in their budget, and they likely wanted to keep things simple for kids, but I'll ponder the lost potential. More than anything, I think I obsess most over the missed potential of Metal Sonic. At the end of the OVA, Metal Sonic is about to fall into lava, right? Sonic extends his hand to save him, only for Metal to reject him and say, there can only be one. The writers had something there. The concept of Metal running on Sonic's memories and personality could have been emotionally gripping, perhaps with a longer runtime and a more focused story, i.e. less pervy Eggman and no Sarah, we could have witnessed Metal Sonic's journey into cognizance as he grapples between what he was designed to do and what his personality is telling him to do. I mean, Sonic is always proud to be the one and only Sonic the Hedgehog. It makes sense that Metal would be the same way. Even to the bitter end. I think about this OVA a lot. Mostly because of Knuckles' hat. With the completion of Sonic 3 and Knuckles, Yuji Naka left for Japan to reunite with Naoto Oshima, and brought with him newcomer Takashi Izuka. The three of them collaborated on Nights into Dreams. It incorporated a lot of the design philosophies that made Sonic so fun to replay, and with Oshima's creative vision guiding the project, it was a wonderful dreamlike trip through colorful and ethereal sights and sounds. With this game, the name Sonic Team became something more than just a team of aspiring developers at Sega. They were trailblazers that had finally made a name for themselves in the industry, and they made that name official in Japan. With Mario making his jump to 3D and passing with flying colors, all eyes were on Sonic to do the same. Sonic Extreme, STI's final project before unfortunately closing their doors, nearly killed its team to work on. Literally. While I don't think Sonic Extreme could have saved the Sega Saturn on its own, it certainly hurt the console not to have a Sonic platformer. Eventually, the weight fell on Sonic's creators to give him that jump, and the end result was Sonic Adventure for the Sega Dreamcast. While I'll save my thoughts on the game for a future video, it's plain to see that it left a huge impact. Contemporary critics and audiences loved it, and it proved that not only could Sonic transition swimmingly into 3D, it also proved that Sonic, as an icon, could endure with an entirely new generation of fans. Sonic wasn't going anywhere anytime soon. Of course, with such a guarantee, it can grow tiresome working on something that you've already perfected. The Sonic team had grown with their character. They'd given it life, nurtured it, and let it blossom into what it had become at that point. Perhaps it was time to accept that they had nothing left to prove, and leave things to the next generation. Shortly after Sonic Adventure was completed, Naoto Oshima left Sonic Team to form Artoon, and after serving as a producer for several Sonic games in the 2000s, Yuji Naka finally said goodbye to Sonic in 2006. The Sonic team was gone, and all that remained were the people they chose to carry the torch. Takashi Izuka remains at Sonic Team to this day. 
At first, his direction for the series was looking bright. He managed to successfully follow up Sonic Adventure, and while Sonic Heroes was a little rocky, it too held promise for the future. It was shortly after that, however, where the Sonic train derailed. Shadow the Hedgehog was a major flop, and Sonic 06 severely damaged the franchise's image. The scars from that game have never truly healed, and since then, they've done everything in their power to refocus. Sometimes their efforts will have a positive impact, but other times they'll completely drop the ball. But we all know this story by now. If anything, the root of the problem may stem from a much larger issue that had been trickling into the games as early as Sonic Adventure. With the balancing of multiple characters and playstyles and the complexity of its overall narrative, several future games either attempt to emulate what worked in Sonic Adventure, or try something new entirely. And both of these approaches have varying degrees of success. As the series presses onward, I feel as though it has moved further and further away from why I and many others fell in love with Sonic in the first place as it continues to change out of a necessity to stay afloat. But, change is a necessity. In order for Sonic to evolve, the developers must first be open to change. If it weren't already blatant enough, my favorite video game series is The Legend of Zelda. The only reason the Zelda series has endured for so long is because the developers have been open to experimentation. It takes guts to commit to something like that when you're in charge of such a beloved series, but they stuck to their guns and I believe the series has continued to evolve dramatically since Ocarina of Time. When people critique them from the sidelines, it serves as crucial feedback that helps them take their next steps, and as creatives, it's important to embrace criticism. All of this is true for Sonic Team today too, and I believe that someday it will all pay off in the same way it did for Zelda. And you know what? The Sonic series experimented during its heyday, too. Without that experimentation, we wouldn't have Sonic CD. While Naoto Oshima was separated from his colleagues that were working on Sonic 2, he would delve into a Sonic project of his own. With the Sega CD around the corner, his team in Japan got to work, and Sonic CD was the final product. The game was nothing short of a passion project, and I admire its ambition, but I believe I know why it remains the most divisive of the classic Sonic games. Sonic CD takes more inspiration from Sonic 1 than Sonic 2 by design, which makes sense considering Sonic 2 and this game were developed concurrently. A lot of this game is built on the old-school philosophy of Sonic 1 that was gradually left in the dust. You have to earn your speed. This is driven by the time travel mechanic. In each act, you can travel to the past, find a generator, and smash it to destroy all of the enemies in an area and create a good future. In order to get to the past, you need to cross a past sign and maintain your speed for long enough to time travel. In most cases, this brilliantly captures the feeling that the original Sonic the Hedgehog wanted to capture. As you try to create enough speed to travel into the past, you'll start to view levels as these non-linear versatile playgrounds. Collision chaos is bouncy and vertical, with plenty of halfpipes, slopes, springs, and bumpers. Tidal Tempest feels rewarding for similar reasons to Aquatic Ruin, because if you are able to maintain speed along the top route, you can time travel with ease. Quartz Quadrant has plenty of roadblocks and obstacles to make going fast a challenge, but it proves to be one of the most rewarding levels to time travel in. If you're the explorative type, you can also find what I like to call time machines in most levels. Essentially, there are little pieces of the level that are designed specifically for people to time travel. Sometimes this means a sign next to a halfpipe, but other times this could be as silly as a sign sitting next to two springs that perpetually bounce Sonic back and forth. Remember that part in Hilltop Zone? 
yeah, they're like that. And yet, I still feel rewarded for finding these things, despite how easy they make time traveling as a whole. Once you arrive in the past, looking for the generators can vary in difficulty. In some instances, you'll pass by the remains of the generator in the present, where it has already done its job. Collision Chaos, Tidal Tempest, and Quartz Quadrant all have memorable instances of this occurring along certain routes, and in Palm Tree Panic, both generators are just at the top of both acts. Other times, they're a bit more obscure. Metallic Madness Act 1 has its generator sitting in an alcove that you can reach with a spring, while Act 2s can be accessed through those tubes you can travel through in the past to find rings and stuff. Now, while this might not seem too bad, finding openings to create speed in Metallic Madness, the hardest level in the game, can be a bit frustrating. Yeah, finding ways to time travel isn't always a wonderful and creative process. Wacky Workbench is an awful level, perhaps one of the worst in a Sonic game. No matter how careful you are, you'll find yourself bouncing all over the place. While this makes simply clearing the level a bit of a chore, it's hunting for the generators that is an absolute nightmare. The act of time traveling is a lot more difficult when you're bouncing all over the place looking for somewhere to run, as you could imagine, but they decided to go a little overboard with one of the generators. In Act 1, you have to get crushed by this cylinder to be brought to the generator. I have no idea how they thought this was a good idea, but this remained the only generator I couldn't find for years. And while I do enjoy the overall swiftness of Stardust Speedway, I feel as though its pacing contradicts the concept of the generators to begin with. That is exactly why some people I've talked to about this game are not very big fans of it. With the checkpoints and giant rings in Sonic 2 and 3 respectively, you had plenty of opportunities to net yourself the emeralds. While Sonic CD only places one generator in each act, and the levels are more compact in comparison to Sonic 2 and 3, every single generator is required to create a good future and get the best ending. Personally, while I think the time travel mechanic can be a nice way to become even more familiar with my favorite levels, its implementation can be spotty at times, and the learning process can be frustrating. Even now, I still have moments where I'm just about to time travel, but I run into a dead end and kill my momentum. Or I'll accidentally cross a future sign before I've traveled to the past. This could be due in part to the 2011 remaster increasing the amount of time it takes to time travel. Here's a side-by-side -side comparison in Palm Tree Panic between the 1996 PC version and the 2011 remaster. Considering this is the most accessible version of the game, it certainly doesn't help with some people's perception of the time travel mechanic. This change may have been made to alleviate situations where you accidentally travel to the future after passing a sign, and sometimes it can enable more creative utilization of speed, but I think it does more harm than good. I remember being so perplexed as I time-traveled in Quartz Quadrant. I had taken too long to time-travel through no fault of my own, and went right over the generator in the middle of the stage. Had I done this from the same point in the original game, I would have shot Sonic right into the generator in the past, which would have been euphoric to witness. I've included a link in the description to what I believe is an essential mod for the 2011 version of Sonic CD. Not only does it restore the original duration for time travel, but it also happens instantaneously. Completely seamless with no load times whatsoever, just as Naoto Oshima always intended. It actually made me want to travel into the future after smashing the generator in the same act, just to see how my work had paid off. The blue skies and the good future of Collision Chaos have never looked more dazzling. With that said, I believe the time traveling in Sonic CD is ultimately gratifying. Sonic CD is an atmospheric game, and like Oshima's later work on Nights into Dreams, you are constantly confronted with overwhelmingly gorgeous sights and sounds in every level. The original Japanese soundtrack is otherworldly and sublime. 
and paired with the artistry on display in the good futures of each level, it proved that the time I spent looking for these generators was worthwhile. Just take a look at how these visuals and music reward the player in each zone. Now, there is actually an easier way to achieve this gratification. Just like Sonic 1, by collecting 50 rings and jumping into a giant ring at the end of each act, you'll have a shot at a special stage. By clearing one, you'll nab a time stone. And by collecting all seven of them, you will guarantee a good future in every zone from then on. No more generators. All you gotta do is beat the game. This is how I most enjoy playing Sonic CD. The level of difficulty in most stages make it a test of skill to hold onto your rings, and you can appreciate the variety in each stage without having to stress over time travel or looking for a specific object each time. I can foster a casual appreciation for what the designers wanted to achieve in these levels, rather than obsess over time travel routes. Of course, you'll only have so many attempts at the special stages, but I don't mind. That's the name of the game with Classic Sonic. Replay the games and improve in every aspect. The feeling of satisfaction when smashing generators will never truly fade away, but the time stones accomplish the exact same goal and yield the same results. What is different, however, is how I feel when I create a good future. Since the time stones guarantee good futures across the board, I don't feel as though I've mastered the stages like I do when I find the generators. I can still totally appreciate the good futures this way, but it isn't the same. Overall, I feel Sonic CD is very conflicted on what it wants to be, but its time travel gameplay loop is admirable. It fits right in with the philosophies on speed that drive classic Sonic, but it isn't always sunshine and rainbows. From an emotional perspective, however, it's a one-of-a-kind mechanic. Watching the levels change before your eyes and seeing them reflect your actions is something that has yet to be replicated. And speaking of which, Sonic CD has a lot of uniqueness that I'll always appreciate. Studio Junio animated the opening and ending sequences for this game, and they depict the Sonic the Hedgehog that I know best. The cool dude that fights for what he believes in and doesn't let anything stand in his way. The sense of humor, and the good that he inspires. The character designs are gorgeous, the flowing landscapes are hypnotizing in motion, and Sonic himself moves gracefully. This is my favorite depiction of Sonic, with Tyson Hess's animated series being a close second. The race with Metal Sonic remains iconic. Every single time I race him, I can just barely outrun him in the end. It's always neck and neck, and it perfectly symbolizes the immaculate reflection of Sonic that Eggman has created. Seeing this race represented in the ending animation left an impression on my young mind that will always stick with me. Sometimes the game works, and sometimes it doesn't. Sonic CD was a worthwhile experiment, and because of that, I still hold it near and dear to my heart. It also made me realize that while I hold this era of Sonic in such high esteem, it can be just as fallible as the Sonic of the modern era for a crucially similar reason. It dared to be different.
Sonic Mania was pretty sweet. It had all of the elements that made Sonic 3 and Knuckles so great, some of the best special stages in a Sonic game, remixed stages with some original ones for good measure, and some quality of life changes to the core gameplay that made for one hell of an overall package. It was a revisitation of what made Sonic so legendary in the first place, and I think Sonic fans needed that after such a rough patch with the franchise's seemingly endless growing pains. But if we were to continue receiving these classic Sonic games, somehow, I don't think they would feel as special. Sonic Mania was a nice reminder of the past, but for now, we should look toward the future. One of the original philosophies that drove Sonic's character design and personality was this idea that he was a challenger. After all, he was designed to challenge Nintendo in the console gaming market, and to challenge the status quo is to inspire change. I revisit Sonic Mega Collection all the time. It's a comforting window into the past, when all the world loved Sonic, but I know that things will never be the same. In order for things to move forward rather than stagnate, they'll have to keep changing and evolving. I once feared that Sonic would eventually move so far away from what I loved about it in the first place, but when I hear about what Sonic Frontiers wants to achieve, somehow, I'm not bothered. Regardless of how the game turns out, I am willing to fully embrace an entirely new interpretation of what Sonic can be, because I know that change is the only way forward. By nature, I think people fear change. We enjoy routine and familiarity, and that's understandable. I have a fondness for an era that will never return, and that prospect used to worry me. But not anymore. Regardless of what the winds of change might bring, I'm looking ahead. Have you ever wondered why Sonic was the color blue? I mean, it has to be because Sega's logo is blue, right? Well, that's only part of the story. While Sonic's color obviously mirrored Sega's logo, it meant something more to Naoto Oshima, the man who designed him in the first place. His initial hopes for the character were for him to be something more than just a protagonist for a platform game. To Oshima, Sonic's color symbolizes his sentiment that the open sky is blue forever. No matter how bad things get, the beautiful blue sky will always be there. That's why I'm glad the original Sonic games are so replayable. Change will always have its ups and downs. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. But the classic era of Sonic will always be there for me when I need it like a warm blanket in the winter, or a cold drink in the summer. As long as I can revisit my past from time to time, the future doesn't seem so bad. Good luck, Sonic Team. You'll get it right again someday. I've been Liam Triforce. Thanks for watching.